Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. The Irish Times Business Podcast in association with Irish Life. Supporting companies and their employees for 75 years. We know Irish life. We are Irish life. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. In a busy show this week, we'll be considering the report from the Public Service Pay Commission, the government's decision not to extend the television licence fee to people watching content on laptops and tablets. And in the second half of the show, we'll be hearing about the betting scandal engulfing Athlone Town and the League of Ireland. Don't forget, you can download this podcast for free from iTunes and it's also available on our website, irishtimes.com forward slash podcast. Joining me in the studio are John McCartney, Research Director with Estate Agent Savills, Irish Times business reporter Laura Slattery and Martin Wall, industrial relations correspondent of the Irish Times. And we're going to start with the report this week from the Public Service Pay Commission, which has recommended that public servants should contribute more to the cost of their pensions, but it stopped short of issuing a recommendation on public sector pay increases. Right, Martin Wall, maybe you could just explain the backdrop uh, to this report and, and give us your view on the recommendations or lack thereof from the Commission. Uh, well, uh, Kieran, the, the commission was set up last year by the government um, and it was basically to look at a number of issues. It was to compare uh, public service salaries with those in the private sector and where applicable uh, international comparisons also as well. It was also to look at the issue of pensions. And in many ways, the government had already signalled that it wanted to go after pensions. And pensions was always going to be one of the big issues in this um, in the forthcoming process that we're about to enter into in terms of the talks. Did, does in the light of what we've seen in the pension sector, or pensions in mm. the private sector, has the value of a public service guaranteed pension increased? Yeah. I suppose and just just as a, by way of backdrop, if you like, there's 100% coverage in the public sector. There's about 40% in the private sector. And for the public sector, the, the bill last year at least was 3.3 billion euro, most of which is picked up by the exchequer. Yeah, uh, to be fair... The, there have been changes in the public service pensions system. Um, there were there was a very very significant change in two thousand and thirteen. People who were taken on after that date have a pension that's based on a career average, where people who were there before that, it's based on final salary. And the increases in pensions were linked not to inflation or CPI, but were linked to rises that were given to people still in the grade. So the pension in the the expectation was that. Given what's happened in the private sector and the collapse of essentially the, the, divine, the traditional defined benefit guaranteed pension in the private sector, that the value of the public service pension had increased. And the, the report 
argued that that value was about between 12 and 18%. So that will be used by the government. And in the in the talks, the government will take that and use that as a basis to press in the talks for public servants to contribute more to their pension. Or what was more likely to happen in reality is the government were planning to re- to eradicate or abolish the, the 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 existing public service pension levy. Now the pension levy was a point was uh, was the first emergency. Bit of a phony levy, really, wasn't it? The pension levy was a bit of a misnomer. The pension levy, in reality, was the first public service pay cut. It was introduced under emergency legislation in two thousand and nine. It was applied to people who didn't get public service mm. pensions. It was applied, for example, to overtime, which was not pensionable. So in reality, it was, a, it was the first attempt by the government to cut the wage bill. What the government is now has in mind is to convert at least some of that into a permanent higher contribution from staff. And the big issue, the big tricky issue is going to be, at what threshold does that apply? What income threshold will this kick in? And that's where the row is going to be and what the rates will be and that those issues. And the Commission stopped short really of, of, of getting into that level of detail. The they said it's up to the parties. The Commission said they should pay more. Mm. Ideally, this should be done to coincide with the abolition of the pension levy. But it's really up to the parties to determine yeah. in negotiations what the rate are and what the threshold, income threshold, at which it should apply. So that'll be one of the big issues in the in the, in the forecast. Right, let's talk to, talk to us now about uh, the, the pay issue, because obviously uh, unions representing public servants are pushing for pay restoration or pay increases in some cases. And again, the Commission... You know, there's a chapter dealing with this, but they, they've stopped short of a, a recommendation to government. Yeah, they don't. It's the, really, again, it's an issue. They say that the pay should be dealt with in as part of a collective agreement. Mm. However, I think the government would be very, very pleased with one line in the piece, or certainly the thrust of the of the recommendation, whereas is the pay rises should be linked to ability to pay, and it should have it should re- reflect the fact that pay the government will have a very limited fiscal space next year, probably about five hundred, six hundred million euro. There are other demands on the public purse, not just pay. So um, that, that's, it said that will have to be acknowledged mm. in the talks as well. How are so, the unions like to take this? You see, the, the issue is not really the, the, the report. I think the issue will be, and the unions have known for some time, you know, that the government would press for, um, for uh, pension changes, that the issue of a three-year deal was probably going to be look like a 6% over, over three years. Not necessarily straightforward 222. It could be backloaded uh, for the reasons we said that the next year is going to be quite difficult in terms of the finances. So it could be, you know, a, a, or you could have a situation whereby, you know, if you give a 2% uh, pay rise next year, but only introduce it in the middle of the year, in reality, it's a 1% rise next year, if you know what I mean. So yeah. that, they, they could do it that way. But the, so the, the, the pay issue will be, there will be pay, in the talks, we're going to have pay is going to be a big issue. Pension is going to be a huge issue. And then there's other issues that are going to have to be dealt with as well, like demands. And I would not underestimate the potential for, for difficulties in these areas. Demands for the abolition of the requirement for staff to work additional hours, which were for free, which were imposed under uh, previous agreements, that, that will be a huge issue to, for be dealt with. We also have issues, n- not just I- in general pay across the board, but there are, there are groups that maintain that they need additional top-up, for want of a better word, uh, pay rises to deal with uh, recruitment and retention difficulties, uh, specifically in relation to areas like nursing, in relation to doctors, in relation to top-level specialist posts across the public service and managerial posts. Outside of the pay and pensions, one of the other big issues that are going to be, it's going to have to come up in the talks, are the issue of working, the working week. Under previous agreements, there were requirements on staff to work, in some cases, an hour and a half, some cases, two hours a week, for free. 
obviously that's hugely unpopular and the staff are looking to um, to have that rolled back. The government has argued, and it will be one of the government's red lines in the talks, that where pay cuts were temporary, the productivity measures approved, uh, secured over recent years were permanent. That will be a big issue. The, um, the other issue will be, in terms of pay, is not just pay across the board, but pay in specific areas that are that are experiencing recruitment and retention difficulties. Key areas, nursing, medicine, areas, top-level management in the in the civil service, and specialist posts in, in terms of the transport aviation uh, sectors, for example. Obviously, we've seen the issues in the in the military, in the in the Air Corps, for example, in in pilots. And one of the issues that that jumped out of the report that will of the Pay Commission report was where we have seen a lot of focus on pay for the lower paid. Lansdowne Road was a flat rate increase targeted at the lower paid, for example. The lower paid in the public service, according to the report, receive more money than their counterparts in the private sector. Substantially more, actually. While the reverse is true at the top. So the pay pressures in terms of general grades is at the top, Mm. not at the bottom. And, and tell us what it had to say about tenure, because obviously there are jobs for life in the public service. Yeah, it it basically kicked a touch on that. It argued that tenure was a had a value, but that there was no scientific evidence or no no, no scientific methodology for actually putting a monetary figure on the value of that. Now the unions will argue in terms of that. Okay, if you're full time and permanent in the public service, you have tenure. There are people. There are a lot of people who had temporary contracts in the, at the in the crash, who had those contracts uh, just cancelled at the end of the contract, terminated. But that happened elsewhere in the uh, widely across the public service, and we also have to bear in mind that in the public service, while ten percent of the public service staff were reduced, it was reduced by ten percent. That headcount fall was secured by voluntary redundancies, mm. where two hundred thousand people lost their job in the private sector largely yeah. on an involuntary basis. John McCartney, um, have you read the report? No, I haven't. Right, OK. Is it fair that public servants should be asked to pay more towards their pension costs? Well, I'm I'm not sure. I mean, I, I think, firstly, the practicalities of it are, you know, from a public service union point of view, if you're going to, in to start a negotiation now would not be your best choice of time to do it because I was just looking at the inflation figures when before I came over this, this afternoon. Currently, the rate of inflation is 0.7% and it's only forecast to edge up very, very moderately over the next couple of years from that. So we're not in an inflationary environment, which has traditionally been the union's argument for looking for pay increases uh, to maintain real standards of living. Uh, and the other thing that, that that's happening is that there has been very sluggish earnings growth in the private sector. And partly, I think the reason for that is that the labour force is actually expanding. So although we're creating lots and lots of new jobs, we're also uh, getting a bigger and bigger labour force because the economic recovery is attracting people back to the country. And of course, last year we had a return of net in migration for the first time in eight or nine years. So so I think it's a difficult, um, the practicalities of it, I think, make it very difficult for the public service unions, whether they uh, you know, whether they deserve a pay increase or deserve to have their pensions cut or or any of that, I think, is a matter of personal opinion. Um, You know... Well, what's your opinion? Well... You know, I've I've worked up until four years ago in the public service personally and the pension that I have, actually, the, the, the pension system is set up so that the real benefits only accrue if you stay forever. 
and um, you know, I think that that is something that needs to be looked at because it encourages. Um, of course, you want continuity. Uh, and you want to encourage people to stay and not to flit around between careers. But also, of course, in the public sector, we have this this problem, I believe it is, that, you know, you have lifers that are in there and they're never going anywhere. And the PMDS, the performance management system, isn't the most efficient. And I, I think ultimately you get a less dynamic workplace because there isn't that mobility in and out of it. And the pension system is clearly um, something that 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 keeps people in there and and prevents mobility in and out of the public service. So I think that there is an argument for restructuring it. In saying that, I think uh, the reality is that most civil servants won't um, retire on, on, on very salubrious pensions. I think that's a myth. Right, OK. Martin, uh, in terms of the private sector on the pension front, um, the government has been proposing a scheme of auto-enrolment whereby everybody who uh, takes up employment... Uh, would be automatically enrolled into a, a pension scheme by their employer. In fact, it would be compulsory for the employer to offer it. Um, and they would have to actively opt out themselves. But we still, I mean, it's been talked about for some time. There's a bit of opposition from uh, employers. We still don't have it. Leo Varadkar is talking about bringing it forward soon. But we really need something in the private sector, don't we, in, in terms of pension because coverage is so low. The situation regarding pensions in the private sector is actually shocking. Mm. When you have 50 to 60 percent of people who have no coverage will be relying on the state pension alone in their retirement. The the income cliff that they will face on retirement will be will be staggering in the years ahead. The danger the government had, I think one of the reasons they've shied away from the whole issue, I think everybody realises and everybody in government over recent years has realised that to do something about private sector pensions is really you know, there is an imperative to deal with it. But there is also potentially a practical reality is that and particularly during the austerity years, um, would an auto-enrolment pension scheme have just been perceived as another tax? And would it have been opposed in the same way as water charges were and whatever? So the that was the danger politically. But I think there is a recognition that this is an issue that has to be grasped uh, as to what levels you want to have, con- level of contributions you're looking for from various people. But that the... the the issue of having 50% or 50 to 60% of the people of the population with little or no pension coverage at the end except the state pension. And when you see beyond into the, um, obviously the move away from defined benefit schemes into defined contribution schemes, no less guarantees, more risky. And in reality, you're seeing there is only something in the region about 500 DP schemes left in the private, in the private sector. And, and I think they're pretty much all closed off to new 90%, entrants, aren't 90% are closed off to new, to, uh, to new entrants. And in reality, are we going to face a situation in the years ahead where the only people, or virtually the only people in the workforce, of the two million people in the workforce who have a, um, a reasonably guaranteed pension scheme are the 300,000 people who work in the, in the public service? Yeah. And that is to take on board what, you know, we have to also, what Jim's saying there, that there are, we hear about gold-plated pension schemes in the public sector there are and there certainly are at the top level that is that is far more than you would get in the private sector but there are an awful lot of people in the public service who will retire on very modest incomes also as well so we have to bear that in yeah. mind as you go up the, the ladder it gets better sure uh, John McCartney uh, is 6% over 3 years is is now the right time to be paying that kind of an increase given the fact that income tax receipts are starting to look a bit soft, as we've seen lately, and we've also got Brexit and other uh, sort of issues outside of our control hanging over us. Yeah. 
Uh, well, traditionally, um, public public sector pay settlements have been the sort of the starting point for the private sector, and the, 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 the you know the private sector goes from there. And if private sector earnings are rising um, at, at less than two percent per annum, I think you can take it that it's going to be inflationary. Um, in the labour market generally, you know, in other words, there's going to be sort of leapfrogging and knock-on consequences uh, for private sector pay and ultimately employers are not going to like that and you will um, certainly have people coming out and saying that it's it's not, you know, it's contrary to national competitiveness and all of that. So I think that there there is uh, an argument um, about that. On the other hand, um, you know, there is a multiplier effect, you know, that if you pay people more and they spend more and it circulates through the economy that ultimately the retail sector and ver- lots of other sectors benefit from that and it becomes self-sustaining and uh, I, you mention you mention a Brexit and that's clearly a headwind for our exports and one of the things I think that that means is that more of the burden of you know the locomotive of growth is going to have to fall back on domestic yeah. demand uh, Martin Ironically John was saying there that traditionally the public services led the way Ironically, on this occasion, we what the, the impetus for the pay issues in the across the economy last year were Lewis was Lewis, which was um, a private sector organisation where you ended up with a pay deal for the Lewis drivers of eighteen percent over four years. In a quasi public sector, though, wasn't it? I mean, they're providing a public uh, service. Well, they are. They are they, still a. They're still a private sector company. A private sector employer. A yeah. private sector employer. You know, so it's obviously they're operating to a state contract, but the the decision making in relation to award the, to to agree the pay rise was taken by the board of Transdev, you know, so the, or the company itself, which is a private sector company. And it was that private sector company, if you go back to Christmas of uh, la- the year before last, it looked like that pay was settled as an issue. There were there were increases across the economy yeah. in the private sector of about two, two and a half percent. The public service seemed to be locked down until September 2018. And then suddenly, by the time the Lewis dispute started, Lewis staff looking for a 54 percent pay rise, firstly, Ending up at eighteen percent when at the when at the at the start they were offered effectively zero. They were looked. They were offered a five year a five year increase pegged to inflation, which, as you just said, was a zero point seven percent. They would have got very little. They ended up at eighteen percent. The message began to get out there, and it followed up in Dublin bus subsequently that uh, industrial action had a ripple effect began yeah. to work. Okay, we we leave that issue uh, there for the moment, uh, Laura. We might uh, take a look at the license fee. Dennis Noxon this week uh, seems to be ruling out a charge for people streaming content in their homes on laptops or tablets, people who might claim that they don't have a television, so therefore they're not subject to a licence fee. The government had considered introducing a, a charge uh, for, for those looking at content on laptops or uh, tablets, but has, has backed away. Why? Well, it just it fears that people will not only not pay it, but that they'll be annoyed about it. I mean, that's the claim that it'll be an Irish water situation. But there was also a number of practical difficulties in with how they were going to enforce that. I think the first piece of, of the picture has to be, uh, you know, putting out to tender the licence fee collection and enforcement Probably overall before deciding uh, how they might uh, change or reform eligibility in future. I mean, this came up last year because... Um, I, I don't know if it was motivated by this, but it certainly coincided in, in timing with uh, in the UK, the, the sort of almost overnight, they decided to make people who access iPlayer, you know, who don't have a TV set, but use the iPlayer eligible for the licence fee there. And there wasn't this, anything like the same amount of hand wringing that we have here about such things. So that kind of reheated, uh, you know, the discussion here about, uh, you know, television as a device is is, is 
not becoming this, the, 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 the only way of accessing content. There's a lot of people who don't have a TV set and may never own a TV set who uh, consume vast uh, quantities of audiovisual content, including uh, RTE content online. So they thought, well, let's, let's, you know, rather than renaming the license fee a household broadcasting charge, let's f- try and see if we can charge owners of laptops Mm. Um, the charge, uh, you know, make them eligible for the existing fee, and they settled on this uh, screen size of twelve inches. Uh, you know, uh, at which point it sort of becomes a, almost like a de facto television set. So the the legislative change would have involved um, a change to the definition of, of a television set in the Broadcasting Act. But you can, you know, even just saying that out loud, you can mm. see the number of complications that would have been with enforcing that. Sure, all you need to do is have an eleven-inch <laughs> laptop, and then laptop, you're not yeah. eligible. Um, but so they've backed away from that. So actually, but uh, you know, Dennis Nocton, the Minister for Communications, put forward a number of amendments to the Broadcasting Act this week. But it was more interesting, I think, from my perspective. Uh, on what he he decided not to do, and that and that was one of the things he decided not to to go ahead with. Okay, Martin, is it just a simply a reality that a minority government, a measure like that, would have been too unpopular and probably hard to implement, so they've just backed away from it? Yeah, well, I presume it would have ended up ultimately dis, uh, would have been determined if it went to a vote in the House, it would have been determined by the position of Fianna Fáil, and if Fianna Fáil had a support, had have opposed it, it would have uh, it would have been voted down. So. It is. It would have, you know, as Laura seems suggesting, it would have been very much a, a hot potato issue. It would have, um, it would just as we spoke earlier on about, about autumn and the pensions, which essentially has the same issue. That asking people for money for something that they do not pay for up to now can be fraught with difficulties. Yeah, John McCartney. I'm going to presume you have a, a TV, a television license. Uh, it's 160 euro a year. Uh, do you feel you get value for money? Ah, oh, yeah, I do. I, I don't think anybody would begrudge um, would would be would begrudge paying it. Um, but well, clearly, uh, a lot of people do. There's a lot of evasion goes on. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, that that's perhaps the case. But I, you know, I think it, it represents good value for what you get. In 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 my view. Um, but in in saying that, um, you know, I think Martin makes a good point that if people have been consuming content through means that are not linked to a television they are effectively freeloading on the system and they're not they're not um, going to voluntarily um, seek to make a contribution to that and yet you know somebody has to fund the production of the content so you know I think it behoves us all um, to recognize the quality of the content that's been produced and 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 to recognize that we all need to to contribute to that. Yeah. Uh, Laura, uh, the Minister has also backed away from this issue of uh, transmission fees, uh, which RTE and other free-to-air broadcasters were quite keen on. This is whereby uh, Sky and Virgin Media and and such companies would essentially pay the free-to-air broadcasters for carrying their channels. Yeah, I mean, this is a really, uh, like, it's it's an industry issue, so it doesn't have the same kind of, you know, consumer interest, perhaps. Um, But it it could possibly, if if they were to uh, make legislative changes that would allow for these uh, retransmission fees, um, it could possibly generate, you know, tens of millions, the same way cracking down on licence fee evasion would. So it's it's an issue that's of interest to RTE. They've been very keen and, you know, lobbying for the, for these fees to be allowed uh, for years now, and it you know it's it's an active issue in the UK as well. So effectively, at the moment, RTE and the other free-to-air broadcasters can't charge um, the the 
these massive mm. pay TV companies, Sky and Virgin, for the carriage of their channels. And, you know, they say, well, that they're effectively building massive subscription businesses, very profitable businesses on the back of content that, that they pay for. So then why is he backed away from this? Um, well, it's just it's it's just Virgin and Sky are, are effectively are, have, have counter lobbied. You could say they're saying they're saying you know no, we're not going to pay. I mean, Tony Hanway, the uh, chief executive of uh, Virgin Media Ireland, was speaking at a media conference this morning where he said, "Look, you know, from our perspective, what we're doing is we're we're exposing RTE to a wider audience. We're giving them the top positions on our platform, and they're they they can maximise their advertising revenues. So they think." It's a little bit much. I think that that's something Tony Hanway said to me before, that RTE wants this money as well. Now, of course, you could say, well, I mean, obviously, you know, (laughs) the the Virgin's Mm. um, free-to-air broadcaster TV3 would also benefit from this, but they're owned by Virgin Media. So it's a bit of a complicated relationship. But interestingly enough, this same, to, to some extent, there's a similar conflict in the UK where retransmission fees possibly will be allowed soon because the digital uh, their new digital economy act um lifts a copyright provision that would allow um the free to air broadcasters there to um chart to pursue this issue and it's actually the commercial broadcaster ITV there that is pursuing the issue and they intend to try and seek cash out of virgin media uh, for the carriage of their main flagship yeah. channel which is interesting because liberty global owns 10% of ITV. So all these companies are kind of very interrelated, but it would effectively, the end result would be um, a flow of cash to the tune of tens of millions um, from the cable uh, uh, operators and, and potentially the satellite operator as well to the people who um, who commission most of the content. The TV, yeah, okay. All right, we'll, we'll leave that one there. Um, John, I want to close on property uh, and on rent, soaring rents in Ireland, particularly in Dublin. Uh, you're director of research at Savills, uh, so you guys have uh, some skin in the property game, as it were. Um, uh, Daft telling us that uh, average rental costs now in South Dublin, €784 Euro a month. And across the Republic, uh, there was an increase of €134 Euros a month over the past year. Um, figures published by DAF show that the average monthly rental in the Republic is now €1,131. Euro. I mean, they're extraordinary numbers. Yeah, they are. And they're, uh, I, th- I think one of the other things to come out of the DAF report was that they're now well above where they were at the peak back in 2008. Um, and yet, and yet, as we know, and we've already discussed, incomes haven't uh, mm. uh, move, moved on from there in any meaningful sense. So it is, um, on one hand, it's, 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 it's shocking and I think very negative um, for a generation, particularly of younger people um, but on the other hand absolutely no surprise to, to to any of us that are involved in the industry because there is just and we keep coming back to the same place there is just an acute shortage of supply uh, relative to the number of bodies that need to be accommodated and uh, that is manifesting mm. itself in rising prices of course in the is it occupied. simply a matter of supply or, or is there profiteering going on by some of these uh, institutional landlords uh, well, um, I mean, I, I, I think institutional landlords and every landlord, in fact, um, will will attempt to um, re- get the maximum return from their asset, and that's that that is commerce, and that's the nature of it. And I wouldn't see any ideological uh, reason to oppose that. That 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 is what 
they do. Um, and from the institutional landlord point of view, their, their view of the world is that they're offering a premium product. So in other words, they're offering a sort of a niche product, a high-end product with tenant amenities, concierge services, um, you know, on-site facilities. too many facilities. apartment blocks now that have concierge services in Ireland. Oh, yeah, well, you see... The, Maybe in Manhattan, but not in Ireland. Well, the institutional landlords at, at the current point in time only own about 5%. Mm. Of the of the total rented but the stock, the biggest landlord in the country is IRES, and that's an yeah. institutional yeah. Uh, landlord. Yeah, I mean Kennedy Wilson probably isn't far behind. Yeah. And yeah. again, it's another uh, big institutional landlord. In, in, indeed. But if you take the likes of Kennedy, Wilson, Ires, Comer Group, Patrizia, um, you, you know, um, Hibernia has a small number. Uh, together, all, all they account for is actually less than 5% of the total residential housing stock in, in Dublin. And but they're, they're also accounting for a lot of the new stock that's coming on stream. And we see in Sandyford that IRES is charging, I think it's around €2,300 for a, a two-bed apartment, which is an extraordinary sum of money. Yeah, sure. But, um, but I, th- I think the point is that, that the market appears to be able to bear it. In other words, they wouldn't be, they wouldn't be seeking those prices if they, if they didn't feel confident that they were going to get them. Mm. And then I think if we follow the thread, we have to ask ourselves, why is it possible... That, that these sort of rents, people will voluntarily pay these sort of rents. Now, in, in the case of these institutional landlords, I, I think what they would say is, well, they're offering a very good product, and I think we have to, to, to accept that. But still and all, I think the bigger issue is that we just don't have enough uh, housing units to, to, to cover the, 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 yeah, the number so of people. it's simply a matter of supply as far as you're concerned, because there are a lot of yeah. commentators out there who feel that supply really won't make any difference here. Even if there was another... 10,000, 100,000 apartments in Dublin, you wouldn't see a massive drop in rents. Well, that, that, that's to go against the law of economics because, of course, if, 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 if you have an increase in, in supply and a relatively static demand, then what you're going to get is vacancy and landlords uh, don't want to sit with void buildings earning no income because they're paying the finance on them in many cases or at least an opportunity cost of, of having their money tied up there. So they're going to do everything that they can do to get somebody into those buildings and the obvious thing to do is to cut the, to cut the rents. So I think you so know, it's just a supply issue. Uh, that's the way I see it, yeah. Right. Okay. All right, we'll leave it there. We're going to take a short break now. When we return, we'll be discussing the extraordinary betting scandal involving Athlone Town. Back in a few moments. Only 29% of us know how much we need to live on in retirement. Irish Life is changing that with Empower, a new approach to company pensions that helps change the way your employees think about their future. For more, go to irishlifeempower.ie or talk to your pension consultant. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information sourced for Irish Life June 2015. Now, welcome back. This is Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. Don't forget you can download this podcast for free on iTunes and it's also available on our website, irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts. In this part of the show, I'm joined in studio by Irish Times soccer correspondent Emma Malone to discuss the betting scandal involving Athlone Town. Emmett, welcome into the studio. Extraordinary revelations in relation to Athlone Town and a recent league game against Longford Town where reports suggesting something like €400,000 was bet on on the match. Uh, UEFA raising concerns with the FEI and the FEI launching an investigation and reports today suggesting that the the players, the squad players in Athlone Town have agreed for the FEI to access their bank accounts and phone details um, to sort of demonstrate that there's nothing untoward (coughs) on on their side. Just explain the backdrop to this whole story and, and how it emerged. 
Yeah, I mean, how far back do you want to go? Uh, there's there's uh, at Lone Town, um, uh, plodding away in the first division, uh, not doing very well, struggling for money. Like this time last year, uh, unable to fulfil one fixture in particular on the basis that they're in dispute with their amateur players, uh, unable to pay them between 20 and 50 euro, the, the money they get for travelling to games. Um, and, and, and really kind of limping along to the end of the season, most of the professionals had left and they wouldn't have been on big money, but uh, maybe 100, 200 uh, and, and they had proved unaffordable so the club gets into the close season gets a new licence uh, the, the system that the FAI operates to uh, grant clubs permission to take part in the league it gets that and then these guys uh, arrive in uh, new uh, owners uh, well not new owners as such investors I think it would be uh, yeah the, a French uh, a French um, uh, football agent stroke coach stroke jack of all trades arrives on the scene does a bit of a tour of uh, a few League of Ireland clubs Offering to um, to bring money to the table, the way it's sold. Well, to presumably these people who are bringing money to the table want to own the club. Uh, I'm not sure that they want to own it outright, but uh, and and they certainly don't seem to own at Lo- at Lone Town outri- outright. They have put in money. Uh, uh, estimates of how much they put in vary. I think it's safe to say it's kind of you know eighty to a hundred thousand, uh, uh, though much higher figures have been bandied around. Um, so it's probably you know it's 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 not a huge amount of money, but they certainly want um, a, a major say in the in, c- in the control of the club. Um, they 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 try to sell that idea to a couple of other clubs. The the the, the sales pitches that they'll put in a lot of money they will bring in players from overseas very high quality players they will win promotion you know pretty much at the first time of asking and they'll be in Europe within two or three years and the idea at that stage is again this is the sales pitch as I understand it is that you bring in young promising players from overseas we're in the English League's backyard uh, they will catch the eye you can sell on players you can also have a team that's high enough quality to qualify for Europe we've seen the sort of money that Dundalk have made from that so it's a it's a win-win you know that's the, that's the business plan and it's kind of plausible enough in its way I'd say if, you, if you're if you've been sold it by the right person but it's important to note that nobody has ever done it and um, uh, you know the league here has a, a you know a really high attrition rate in terms of financial failures and um, you know up until recent years mm. virtually every club that won the league um, you know would, go, would go wallop within yeah, you know sure. a, a year to 18 months um, Do we know who these owners are? Well uh, it's somewhat in dispute uh, it's it, what we have is that this French guy Marc Fromeau who's the front man uh, comes in says that this is what we want to do mm. uh, in or at the least end. where they're from uh, so he he uh, he is ta- he has told uh, other clubs that it's a mixture of Chinese and Portuguese money. But in fact, what what the people at Loan say is that the Chinese were never mentioned to them, and it was simply Portuguese money. And so what we have is a number of Portuguese investors. We don't know who the the, the main person is at all. Nobody. The club at Lone Town won't name him. Uh, it's a holding company uh, in Lisbon that the money was was put through, and. Uh, we we are we're left in a situation where mm. the club claimed that it's all Portuguese money, but in actual fact there were rumours, and they have you know gained a fair amount of substance. I think over a period of weeks, that in fact the person behind the uh, the the operation, the driving force behind this, is a, a Chinese agent, a FIFA agent uh, called Eric Mao. Uh, he's been involved in clubs across Europe previously, most notably Atletico Club de Portugal, which is where several of the players now at loan and most of the coaching staff have come from directly. Uh, he was involved there. Mm. Uh, he was also involved in clubs in Romania 
Lithuania, in Latvia, in Lithuania. And it's quite a multinational field, the Athlon squad now, isn't it? Oh, it is a very multinational field, yeah. Uh, you don't have to get very multinational to be multinational by the League of Ireland standards, but these guys have it, yeah. They have uh, a couple of Latvians, uh, Romanian, uh, Uruguayan, uh, French and Portuguese coaching staff. Um, yeah, it's very exotic. Right, and how are Athlone doing on the pitch? How are they performing? Well, this is where the whole thing really started to come apart, I think, because, you know, obviously this plan, you know, it does make some sort of sense on paper, and I think you could certainly, if you were sat down and sold it by the right person, you could kind of mm. buy into it. But it's you know, predicated on performance. It absolutely is, and it's predicated on bringing in quality players who have somehow been, you know, overlooked in their in their own markets, and that, you know, they might or they might be the type of player that would particularly appeal to an English, certainly a championship, or, you'd, you know, it would want to be a championship or Premier League. I would have thought to, to bring in the sort of money that you'd be uh, you'd be looking to make on this sort of thing and unfortunately these players haven't looked that way at all a couple of the attacking players have looked okay but by and large defensively they've been a bit of a mess the team is doing only fractionally better uh, than last year when it was struggling to get a team on the pitch it was dragging along the foot of the table until last week when they had their best result of the season when they beat Cove um, but prior to that they were generally losing games and generally losing them by quite a few goals Right, okay, so tell us about this betting irregularity that's being alleged. Uh, How did it come about? When did it come to the attention of the authorities? Yeah, so... As I understand it, the FAI were wary of this. You know, this, you know the, the, these guys uh, arrive in Ireland uh, in the close season. The licensing has already been done. They, they tour around the clubs. They say, we can bring all this money to the table. So they were, they were wary. I mean, obviously, this would be one scenario of many. I mean, you can have the, the, the kind of... Uh, you can either buy into the idea that they're going to bring in and, and sell on players or the fear would be that, that it would, might be some sort of betting scam or there might be other, mm. other kind of motives for and doing this. And does the FAI know the identity of the investors in that loan? Yeah, I presume so. Uh, they're a little bit vague on that. Um, the league director, Fran Gavin, told members of the media before the season started that he'd met the investors and that, um, and that he was reasonably convinced by them. Uh, that said, the, the the conversation was peppered with kind of cautious notes on his part. Um, uh, he didn't really come across as as, as being all that convinced at all. Um, so what you have then is the season starts, they don't do very well and they get to the stage, a couple of erratic results, a couple of really particularly erratic uh, performances and results, but they get to, to, to the Longford Town game. This in April. This in April. Now, apparently, on the basis of their concerns, um, the FAI had alerted UEFA to the, you know, to their to their concerns about all of this, to the to the fact that there might be an issue here. UEFA was monitoring all of their uh, all of their games, and it was met, met, uh, monitoring all of the betting patterns. Now, I mean, this is all done by algorithm. They, you know, essentially monitor the betting patterns on on, on every single game, hundreds of thousands a year. Um, it's a it's an amazing operation. Um, a few different companies specialising at this stage. One Sport Radar. Um, I spoke to their representatives last week they do work very closely with um, with UEFA uh, they take in uh, information from 500 bookmakers and other betting markets exchanges the like uh, from around the world and um and they look for the really very slight deviations in expected betting patterns on, on games of all different sort of natures across different sports um, what happened here was um, that you know, basically, red lights started uh, flashing. Things went off the the the, the scale. You know, uh, mm. alarm bells started ringing. Uh, really, what you had was um, a very substantial amount of money being bet on a game that was attended by four hundred people and um, was really, I mean, two lower mid table. Um, and it was specifically on a goal being scored so, in the last few minutes of the so game. So what it was was on three particular bets. Uh, three. Uh, 
one that the the first half would contain at least two goals, one that the g- game as a whole would uh, contain at least uh, four goals, and one that Longford would win the game by at least two goals. And uh, and those two last bets were both kind of required a late goal in the game. And this was the most kind of blatant uh, example of, of of where things were were you know fishy. I think would be the kind kind way of putting it. I mean, UEFA here have absolutely no doubt the language they use is you know completely certain that there was wrongdoing here, that there was uh, an inside knowledge of um, what was going to happen displayed in the betting patterns because what happened was all of these bets required another goal. These two particular bets required another goal to be scored late in the game. We got to the 89th minute and money was still going on. At that stage, you would expect the odds, which are driven by the amount of money bet, to start getting higher and higher because time is running out. But that didn't happen. People kept betting and kept clearly... um, retain their confidence that a goal was going to be scored as indeed it was in the, in the third minute of injury time and uh, at that point mm. Well if your wife is right then uh, there has to be some wrongdoing on behalf of, uh, of of players or coaches or somewhere along the way Well yeah, I I think if if UEFA this is, is right, denied, if, if, this if, is denied by the players. Absolutely, by the way, absolutely, and the club and everybody else. So if UEFA is right, there has to be wrongdoing on the part of the players. There's no, I I, I certainly can't logically see how you know you can argue that that you know you could argue that perhaps coaches are in on it, perhaps other club officials are in it. You could argue anybody might be in on it, but it's hard to make it happen on the pitch unless the players themselves are in on it. Um, and uh, you know that is very hard to that's very hard to establish. The FAI have been interviewing players for the last two days. They're, as you say, now looking at they're going to look at their phone records and their bank records. I mean, I'm not really entirely sure how much they to, they, they expect to find in that. We have, for instance, you know, in, 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 amongst the teams, uh, amongst the Athlone team, we have a number of players who've come over in the close season, and uh, two of them have been involved in matches on 17 previous occasions where UEFA have investigated. But neither of them has ever been convicted of anything. One, a Romanian player, has been involved in four games previously that were investigated. Now, it's it's worth noting at this point that all of the Longford players will, after this, have uh, you know a, a game against their name that was investigated. So, if you play in the Romanian league, which is a car crash uh, for um, you know improper betting and bribe taking and everything, there's stories every day of the week. Only last week, a major story broke about bribery relating to the television rights uh, uh, for the mm. league and uh, and uh, the association there. Um, then you know. It could well be that it's impossible to avoid almost. Uh, how, how, how much was bet and, and where was the money coming from? Last week, mm. uh, two weeks ago. Uh, well, we don't really know where the money was coming from. Um, I mean, uh, they, I mean, they, they were. It was bet largely in the in the Asian markets. The main companies identified as being involved in it um, or being the target of it uh, in the UEFA documents were registered in Malaysia, the Philippines, and China. But that you know that would be fairly typical. The Philippines is a huge uh, a huge uh, hub now, like Gibraltar. Um, and, uh, for and, and typically, Chandler. how much would be bet on a League of Ireland game? Well, that's kind of impossible to say, really, uh, or at least it's very difficult. Uh, I spoke to one um, uh, bookmaker here, a very substantial bookmaker, uh, well-known, um, a high street name with a big uh, internet presence, and they talked in terms of a big Premier Division game here, uh, them turning over on all bets, all aspects of everything to do with that game, around €10,000, uh, a First Division game, absolute tops what they would be mm. would be 2,000 euro um, a game like this I got the sense that it would be a matter of hundreds um, 
I was I, there's a bit a little bit of background in this, to this in terms of the FAI and 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 the potential for people to bet abroad on on games and uh, and the people from Sports Radar were saying that there's been a kind of arms race within the betting industry that bookmakers you know so much of which uh, depends on having loyal loyal customers who have old accounts they're terrified of losing customers because they don't offer a market on a particular thing so this is why you have uh, so many betting companies in the Philippines Malaysia China. Yeah. You know, uh, betting on the first division in Ireland, um, and so they are open to this because they have to have to offer odds on it. Quantifying how much is bet over yeah. there uh, is is very difficult. But certainly, I've talked to people in the industry in Britain who say that you know it's astonishing how much is bet bet on peripheral leagues and lower divisions, and it would routinely run into hundreds of thousands. Wow. Okay. So where does it go from here, Emmett? That remains to be seen. That the FAI are investigating it. Um, uh, the suggestion out of it is that they're going through a fairly predictable run of questions, asking people what they knew, when they knew it, who picked the team, uh, who told, uh, what instructions were given to the team, uh, the sort of stuff you would expect uh, in these circumstances. Unless there is a, a smoking gun, I, I can't really see where it goes. I mean, my are the guards involved? The guards have been informed uh, so far, to the best of my knowledge. No players have been interviewed by the guards. Um, the okay. the investigation has been carried out by the FAI. And if I was a betting man on this, I'd say all these players will simply have one extra extra game listed beside their name that was investigated. Okay, and slightly better news. Mm. Uh, Dundalk produced some accounts uh, recently for most of last year. Yeah. And it shows that they made a profit of three million plus, uh, largely based, I guess, around their success in Europe. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so they had a very good run in Europe, uh, uh, qualifying rounds of the Champions League, followed by the group stages of the Europa League. Uh, you know, the prize money for that had gone up uh, hugely since Shamrock Rovers managed it a few seasons ago. They are expected to have grossed around €7 million Euro from their participation in the two competitions. The profit shows that uh, th- their profit is estimated between kind of 3.1 and 3900000 a little bit difficult to be precise about at this stage. And also, the accounts only run to the 30th of November. They haven't finished their campaign at that, uh, at that stage, so mm. they had another game to come. Uh, they uh, UEFA don't pay uh, all of the prize money until after the competition is finished and that money's paid through the FAI so uh, it should be the first of two fairly decent years for them Right, okay um, but uh, success comes at a cost there was an increase in a substantial increase in the wage bill a very substantial increase in the wage bill. I, I think Dundalk have been one of the clubs here. There's a slight move back as, as things have improved at the top end of the game here uh, towards uh, giving players longer-term contracts again, uh, two- and three-year contracts. Uh, from the time of the bust, um, when several clubs suffered um, terribly financially because they were stuck with players on very high wages over, over three-year contracts, say, um, there was a, a move back to one-year deals and, and there were four, five, six years there where virtually every single player in the League of Ireland was on a one-year deal the flip side of that is if you do well things are picking up and money's coming in those players are in a position to renegotiate their deal at the end of each season that's what's happened at Dundalk their wage bill went up by more than 100% last year uh, from around 900,000 to about 1.1 million some um, other interest 2.1 2.1 million sorry um uh, some interesting other payments there, 400,000 uh, euro pension contribution, which could be the first in the history of the League of Ireland. Uh, I've never seen one in a set of accounts before and a very substantial one at that. The suspicion would be there that that's a bonus payment relating to performance in Europe that somebody wanted paid in a, a tax-efficient way. Um, but yeah, absolutely. There's, uh, mm, right. and, and some of those players would have been on substa- substantially increased contracts again for this season, although the club has tried to get back to, to giving out two and three-year okay. deals. So is Dundalk just a one-off or is the League 
league on a better footing financially? I think at the top end of the league, uh, things are slightly better again. It, it The game here has long been dependent on precisely the sort of businesses um, that do well in the boom time for sponsorship. So uh, a lot of money coming back in from, you know, things like the building industry, um, but also also other businesses that, that, are, that are doing well again because of, of the boom. So more money coming into the clubs at the top end. But as you see with the Dundalk account, suddenly costs going up again very quickly as well. All right. Adam Malone, thank you for joining us. Great. It's been a pleasure. Okay, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to John McCartney, Martin Wall, Laura Slattery and Emmett Malone. Jennifer Ryan produced the show with JJ Vernon as sound engineer. Don't forget you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our business today email at irishtimes.com. You can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter and Facebook. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.